podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Red Inca. I'm Jared Kimber. This podcast has adverts, but if you prefer your podcast without, in the show notes you'll see the link to my Patreon page and you can listen to our chats uninterrupted. Patreon also comes with many other benefits as well, including a Discord channel and private chats with me. But now, the show. This episode of Red Inca is about how hard it is to face a ball from a fast bowler. And in it, I take you through the absolute madness and science of it all. We talk softball, baseball, and eyeballs. Also, Ross Taylor, Don Bradman, and I explain what a saccade is and why cricket would be ruined without it. In 2004, Jenny Finch, who was a women's softball player, appeared in the Major League Baseball All-Star Game. As she walked out to the mound to face the great slugger Mike Piazza, her teammates in the outfield sat down. The reason was simple. They knew that no batter could hit Jenny Finch. And they were right. Piazza struck out. Albert Pujols faced Pinch once too, and he never hit her. Barry Bonds whiffed as well. Alex Rodriguez refused to even face her. If you don't know who all those people are, just Google them. They hit a lot of home runs. They're by far and away some of the greatest hitters of balls that has ever lived in any sport, and she embarrassed all of them. In fact, one of the star baseballers was heard to say, you mean women actually hit this stuff? And if you don't know the difference between baseball and softball, essentially baseball pitchers throw, where in softball they bowl underarm. Baseball pitchers stand 60 feet and 6 inches away. Softball pitchers are 43 feet away. And yet the balls get to the plate in basically the same amount of time. I should also mention that softballs are bigger than baseballs. So you're now thinking, well, wait a minute. If they go at the same speed and they're bigger, how is it all these guys miss Jenny Finch's deliveries? It's all about her mechanics. Baseball sluggers have trained their entire life to look for the pitcher's wind back and then get a good look at the ball coming from somewhere near the shoulder. Now, there are some pitchers who throw from lower but none as low as Finch does, who is way down by her knee. And also, she pitches from low to high. Baseball pitches are usually high to low. And without all these cheat codes they had been collecting their entire lives, these sluggers who were multi-multi-millionaires looked like amateurs when facing her. They had the same reflexes and eyesight they had when they were crushing 100-mile-an-hour fastballs, but they didn't know what to look for when it came to Finch's slower lifters. I should say at this point, as far as I'm aware, she's not related to Aaron Finch. But within Jenny Finch's softball pitching, there lies a deeper truth about sport. Human beings are not made to hit objects moving as fast as her pitches or Mark Wood's thunderbolts. Not your mate Dave, who only leaves the sofa to get a beer, and not Joe Root. When people are tested for their simple reaction time, whether they are teachers, lawyers, or professional athletes, it takes around 200 milliseconds. And to explain that better, it takes 150 milliseconds just to execute a blink. Now, if 200 milliseconds already sounded pretty quick to you, now imagine you are holding a bat. It takes around 500 milliseconds at the professional level for a ball to be delivered to you. And with Mitchell Stark or Joffre Archer, it's quicker still. All the movements a batter makes are based on what happens in that first 250 to 300 milliseconds. The length of most test match deliveries are between 4 and 8 meters from the stumps. And so most pro batters are guessing what will happen before the ball has bounced. When you are facing fast bowling like this, you are playing cricket by prediction. And we don't just know this by cricket. 
It's been a very famous test used around the world in many sports now to basically just turn the lights off on athletes. You get a wide receiver in the NFL or a striker in football, and you send the ball their way, and just after it leaves the foot or the hand of the person, you turn the lights out. Now, if this was you or me, we'd be absolutely nowhere. But for a professional athlete, they're still roughly in the right position, even if they can't see the entire pass. And we have actually tested this in cricket a few times. In fact, directly pro batters were tested compared to amateur cricketers. And if you were facing a ball that left the hand and they turned out the lights, and I am assuming here that you specifically are not a first-class cricketer, you'd be in a terrible position. A first-class batter will at least be near the ball and playing close to the correct shot. There's been many tests done in Queensland, but also Bob Woolmer did similar tests over 20 years ago. We think that batters have incredible eyesight and brilliant reflexes, and that is why it appears like A.B. De Villiers has more time than anyone else. But the truth is actually far more complicated than that. And there are several cases within sport where players have actually had worse than average eyesight. Edgar Martinez was a Hall of Fame baseballer from the Seattle Mariners. He led the batting averages twice in his major league career and also hit 309 career home runs. I don't really know that much about baseball, but it seems like a lot to me. He did all this while suffering from strabismus, an abnormality that prevents his eyes from working together in tandem. So at times, he would lose his ability to see depth perception and also velocity. Now, I'm no expert in baseball, but those seem like two fairly essential things in hitting a ball traveling anywhere between 80 miles an hour and 105 miles an hour. And guess what? This condition gets worse with age and fatigue. Martinez played 2,055 major league games. The most I counted one year was 155, and he was 41 when he retired. To have a career like he did with this condition does kind of tell you a lot about what he was doing. For Martinez, we actually have a lot of science involved. But in cricket, we have a couple of stories that have a little bit less. Let's start with Don Bradman. While serving as a physical fitness instructor during World War II, that job did cause some problems with his reputation within Australia at that time as well. But also, Bradman's eyesight was allegedly rated poor by the army. After the war, he averaged 105 from his 15 tests. We don't know how true that story is. Because of all the research, I did try really hard to corroborate it, but it really is more of a rumour, but a rumour that a lot of people in Australian cricket believe. But either way, Bradman clearly didn't have the eyesight that he did as a younger man, but he still absolutely dominated afterwards. But we also know that Nawab of Batudi played for India after a car crash actually damaged his eye. It was quite clear that he wasn't the same player afterwards. He probably would have gone on to have a much better career had he not had that accident. But... Even afterwards, he still made six test centuries. He probably wasn't the star that everyone thought he would be, but he could still clearly do a job at test level. And in modern times, we have Ross Taylor, who had an eye test after struggling in a test match in 2015 against Australia. He had a perigeum, which is a small benign growth. A few days later, Taylor made 290 after being told simply to open his eyes wider with some more eye drops. Eventually, he would receive eye surgery. But in the two years before that eye test, he averaged 51 across all international cricket. And in the two years after seeking help, he also averaged 51. Although the second 51 probably felt easier. And the reason that all these players I've mentioned could perform without fantastic eyesight is that batting isn't just looking at the ball. It's actually using the previous delivery, the field, the bowler, and so much more. As one player put it to me years ago, When you're facing a 90 mile an hour bowler, it's kind of like walking around your house in the dark. 
you can see enough because you know where everything is. And if you want to go back to the science of all this, there's been many tests when having a look at players facing a bowling machine. For instance, a lot of the tests will say that facing a bowler at 80 miles an hour is much easier than facing a bowling machine at the exact same pace. If you crank that bowling machine up to 90, or if you're a Russian roulette fan, I don't know, 100, even the best players of fast bowling in the world look a little bit stupid. That is because there are no clues or signs. It is just them trying to react to the ball. And at that point, amateurs and professionals don't look that much different. Put it this way, if we go back to the Jenny Finch story, that's essentially what you're doing. You're taking away all their clues. What first-class batters and test batters do is they're actually using a whole bunch of information that is not just after the ball has been released. A test batter might have great vision and incredible reflexes. However, without the ability to predict based on everything that has happened before that delivery, they're still not going to last long against fast bowling. But eyesight still matters. This is why Taylor and Martinez fix their sight and why no players pull their helmet over their eyes like Luke did when he was training in the first Star Wars movie. Players having decent eyesight helps, but their ability to collect the right information is as important. And it isn't always the quality of your eyesight, but quite often what you are looking at. A few years ago, I interviewed Dr. Sherelle Calder on what batter's eyes are actually doing. This is what she said. They track the ball up to a point, and if it moves too fast, their eyes do a jump or a saccade. And this movement actually predicts where the ball is going to get there quicker than watching it. That's right, top batters are taking all those visual clues and then plotting the best probable place for their eyes to complete the shot. And Calder would know, she runs an organisation called iGym. Her client list has included Ernie Els, the England and South Africa rugby teams, Tottenham Hotspurs, the Dutch women's hockey teams, NHL teams, NFL players, F1 drivers, and the French opening winner Anna Ivanovic. If I was actually to list all the athletes around the world she has worked with, this podcast would never end. Calder is probably the go-to eye trainer in cricket. Her earlier work was with Bob Woolmer and John Buchanan, two of cricket's maddest scientists. In her career, she's worked with Australia, Pakistan, England, South Africa, and also a bunch of the leading associate nations like Scotland, Ireland, Canada, Kenya, and Namibia. Calder has spent decades in Cape Town studying how athletes use her eyes because she was a hockey player herself. This is what she told me. What I work on is how you take information in, called input skills. Like how quick do I track the ball? And we find some people who process that information too slow, so we train that ability as well. So you might have the ability to track really well, but the process in the brain is slow. So this means his hands are going to be slow and then vice versa. And there are some who've got really slow tracing skills, but really good processing skills, and they respond differently. For Calder, it doesn't really matter if she's working with a golfer or a fencer. And if you didn't know, fencing is the fastest reaction sport. Her job is to train athletes to look at what they need to see. In cricket, that is often fast bowling, but she's also worked with fielders who struggled in catching positions and also one major batter, Saeed Anwar, on his trouble with a spinner. This is her again. I worked with Pakistan in 1999. The bowler that he really battled against in those days was Muralitharan, and he obviously had this very unique, different style. So if you're not used to picking up the ball at a certain time and have the ability to do that, you're going to miss something. Now, Think about this, if you can miss something at Murali's friendly 55 miles per hour, then how dangerous could it be if you can't pick up someone at Shoah Bakhtar's 100? And while we assume the players have natural good eyesight and are very good at this, there are many who are just obviously a lot better. Graham Gooch and Sanal Gavaskar were famous for spotting clues when the bowlers were at the top of their mark that their teammates could not see. Nasser Hussein tells stories about Gooch telling him to look for things at the top of the bowler's run, and Nasser not being able to see what he was talking about. 
Nasa was a way above average talent as a batter. I mean, he was a very solid test player. He also had 20,000 first-class runs and 5,200s. But what he saw was different from what someone like Gooch saw. And it was perhaps Gooch's eyesight and also what he was looking for that meant that he would end up with the most test runs ever for someone over the age of 35, while averaging almost 50 while doing it. We know that there are certain players who are incredible at picking up the most subtle changes of action or unpacking a mystery spinner. But it doesn't mean that all players know what they are doing or that all of them can do it. As Calder notes, what I've found over the years of working with hundreds of thousands of elite athletes over the world is just because he's an opening batter, we presume he's got that skill because he plays for Pakistan and he'll be good at that. Calder's work breaks down into two areas, the track and the jump. So essentially tracking is looking at the ball from the hand until you've got a good idea where it was going. One international batter explained it to me as having to look in a small box. Others call it narrowing it down to a small TV screen. If you hear that out loud, it seems a little bit ridiculous. How do you narrow your eyes down to where the ball is? Because think of everything else that is in front of you, the bowler, the pitch, the stumps, the sight screen. If you're a professional, there's also a stand. For an amateur, there might be a tree or a row of houses. Oh, and of course, the bowler is moving and the hand is probably going all over the place. It's moving up and down, maybe even sideways as they enter the crease. And then it comes to the delivery stride where the ball moves even more. Some bowlers show the ball clearly, some accidentally obscure it. Others like Sunil Narayan do this on purpose. Then there is the flurry of action that results in the ball coming down to you. So that is essentially what Calder is trying to do, train batters on how to track the ball. And that is what the best players generally already do. But remember, that is only part of it, right? Now you need that jump or cicadic eye movement for its scientific term. This is where the batter is moving their eyes to where they believe the bowler will deliver after that initial track. It's actually hard for pretty much anyone to focus on the ball perfectly when it's coming towards them. But at the professional level, it's moving too fast for you to even do that. So that cicadic eye movement actually helps you do it. In fact, if you think about it, cricket, baseball, tennis, softball, fencing, many of these sports would just cease to exist because they got so quick that without the ability to actually do this, to have this cicadic eye movement, we wouldn't be able to play them anymore. We'd be bowling faster than we could bat. The good news is that batters did work this out. And in fact, Calder believes that these are trainable skills, like learning to play the sweep shot might be. This is what she said. Cricketers have all got strengths and weaknesses in their visual system. Skills they are really good at and skills they are really bad at. So what I do is identify the good ones, the bad ones, and then make both of them better. Athletes are really famous for covering up their poor skills. So batters would more consistently use shots that they are comfortable with. But it's that odd ball that gets you out. With technology and analysis nowadays, everyone knows exactly what you're doing and they can get you out more often on that one shot that you're not good at playing. That level of analysis happens in baseball and tennis too, which have similar kinds of reactions needed. But a lot of the sports that have fast reaction times don't have the options that cricket does. Batting is a 360 degree choice with a huge shot variance. So batters handle that when they are facing a bowler who tops out at 90 miles an hour by having very rigid plans. Instead of just reacting to the ball, they are perhaps going in with as few as two or three scoring options that happen to be their best shots. So even when they're not playing a ramp or a scoop, they're actually still premeditating against the faster bowlers. So let me try and explain this very clearly. To face a fast bowler in cricket, you have to use information gleaned from before the ball the 200 milliseconds that it starts traveling towards you. Then you have to make a predictive jump after the delivery and then to a certain extent, execute your premeditated shot. Once I've said all that out loud, it actually makes it sound far less like a batter's game than we always hear. 
And of course, as bowlers have got quicker, the game has changed. For instance, just having a helmet and arm guards and chest guards and all these sorts of things make batters more confident. The new attacking shots that you see also, again, make batting an easier thing, even if the science tells us it's still very hard. There's also just a whole bunch of smaller things like use of the crease, bigger bodies, stolen singles and bat technology over the last few years. In the future, batters will be able to have a look at edgetronic cameras that shoot at, you know, close to a thousand frames per second that will be pointed at the front of the bowler's hands so that they can learn a lot more secrets. And it's also worth remembering that it's not like cricket went from nothing to something. This has been a progression. Fast bowling has evolved over the years. It actually began as underarm, a little bit like Jenny Finch, but not quite at her speed. Now there are more 90 mile an hour bowls than at any point in history, and batters will continue to have to figure out methods to adapt to them. But even with all that said, the fact that anyone, and not just the cricketers, but the softballers, the baseballers, the fencers, the table tennis players, whoever it may be, has the ability to strike the ball the way they do, is actually amazing. The more science that I looked into for this, the more I was amazed that batters can actually hit any bowling over 80 miles an hour. Thank you for listening. This podcast is made available by the people who support us at Patreon, so thank you to all of those who do. There is a link to the Patreon in the show notes. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes the best audio anyone can from random Zoom calls. Makunja Benredi is in charge of our video side. Orijoti Senpathy turns the files into video podcasts. And Shibanka Patacharya makes our graphics. Our theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets.